This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit nicuconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. We are back with a special episode. Uh, Daphna and I are today joined by the EB Neo team, and we are going over contenders for the Article of the Year campaign. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing great. We had so much fun doing this last year, and we're so grateful that the EB Neo team was uh, willing to collaborate with us again. So we can't we can't wait to inform everybody of the finalists. Let's say that's right. That's right. And so today we are joined by four of the EB Neo team members. Uh, we have Dr. Brian King, Dr. Rashida Vereen, Dr. Abdul Razak, and Dr. Atul Maholtra. Guys, welcome back to the show. Happy to be back. Hello. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah. For people who are following along, we are recording this episode. The brackets will be released on uh, social media, and we're going to have a form of giveaway for people who are entering this uh, campaign, submitting their 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 votes for the article of the year. And there'll be special prizes for people who simply submit a bracket, but be more special prizes for people who actually get the bracket correct. So stay tuned for that. We're still debating on gifts and, and, and methodology. So that will come as this episode airs. But uh, so yeah, so be, please pay attention as we go through this bracket. So Without further ado, we're going to put Rashida on the spot, and we are going to start with the bottom left of the bracket with a paper by Jacqueline Gallup, and it's called Randomized Trial of Surfactant Therapy via Laryngeal Mask Airway versus Brief Tracheal Intubation in Neonates Born Preterm. Rashida, can you tell us a little bit about, about this paper? Yeah, so this paper was published in Journal of Pediatrics. I love this paper because basically what they're trying to do is see, is there another way for us to administer surfactant? So we all know about MIST. We all know about Ensure. We've heard about the aerosolized. But what about laryngeal mask? And I think the great thing about this trial is it's a non-inferiority trial. So 
the results and the methodology give us another technique to administer surfactant. So all they, unfortunately, they only had 100 babies because of this trial actually was done right before uh, the COVID pandemic. So they had to stop. So they had 51 infants in the group that got surfactant via LMA, 42 in the group that got surfactant through an ETT tube, and their outcome was to look at failure or need for mechanical ventilation after an hour. And what they saw was failure rates were actually less in the LMA group, and they looked at some secondary outcomes as well, and there was no difference there. So the conclusion from the study was that um, surfactant therapy via LMA was non-inferior, to the ensure what they used. Um, and I just wanted to point out some other really interesting thing in this the methodology. They did do pre-medication that was standard for ETT, uh, excuse me, the insure method as well as LMA method. And then they also included learners in this trial. Um, most of the learners did LMA and did not do the insure, but I thought it was a really great study that I think gives us more evidence in in terms of LMA being a viable method for administering surfactant, especially when we think about intubation, opportunities going down, and many babies are just needing intubation just for surfactant administration. So I thought this was a great trial and definitely a wonderful candidate for article of the year. All right. She, she, she seems biased. Let's hear from the other. Uh, <laughs> what do you guys uh what do you guys think i'm being facetious i kind of agree with rashida i think this is also uh, a great candidate for article of the year especially considering how many people it can impact when we're looking at the number of people who are intervening on babies at the time of delivery with various level of training i think the opportunity to use something other than a neat tube which is sometimes difficult to insert really increases the possibilities for uh, how many people can actually successfully manage babies with complex respiratory symptoms at the time of birth? Uh, so I kind of agree, but I'm I'm just curious to hear a little bit from the group. What uh, what do other people think? Atul, go ahead. I'm not in favor of this article. Actually, I don't think it should have been in the top eight. If you ask me, whoa, you can say I'm starting off controversially. Wow. But, uh, <laughs> the reason I think is that they put a non-inferiority uh, margin of twenty percent, so they mm -hmm. were happy to accept twenty percent failure. There are two aspects of the trial, which one was the non-inferiority, which I was not happy with. The other thing is a lot of units around the world have gone on to minimally invasive surfactant therapy or LISA, as people know it. Mm -hmm. So insure is not done in many units. So it's not directly comparing uh, what is even more minimally invasive versus something which is quite, I agree with Rishida on the front that it is another technique of surfactant administration, the supraglottic or the LMA. Uh, but yeah, sorry, I'm not in favor of this trial. Okay. I think I partly agree with Atul as well. <laughs> not just being, I'm in Australia, but I'm saying that this is, <laughs> this trial is a small trial. So we are basing the conclusions on the um, the small number of babies that are recruited and saying that it is a non-inferior. But the major problem is the non-inferiority margin is very, very large. That is number one. Number two is, I mean, of course, when you take a non-inferiority margin, which is very, very large, then you end up with sample size that is being very small. And you conclude non-inferiority, but technically it might not be the case because it's the, the margin is so small and the babies included in the trial is very, very small. The other big problem, which Atul has rightly pointed out, is that the comparison seems imbalanced. So in one group, you are administrating pre-medications which is ETT, because you have to. There's no mm -hmm. other way. You don't mm -hmm. want to put a tube in a baby without giving any medications. 
in another group, you're not doing that. And I mean, what you, what really you're trying to understand here is whether we can reliably give surfactant and true LMA. But here, what the authors have shown is that, I mean, I, I don't know whether the surfactant has gone really well, but what they have really shown is that there are adverse effects of the pre-medications, and which is why they have shown there's no difference. But the problem is the comparisons are imbalanced. Mm-hmm. The pre-medications have administered in one group and it is not in another group. And that is why you can see a bit of more failure rate. In fact, they looked at 24 hours failure rate and they have said the failure rates are more in ETT surfactant group. And that was surprising yep. for me when the article came up. Why? When the surfactant has gone rightly through the endotracheal tube, why should it fail? Then I realized that pre-medications was administered in another group and then it's not in another group. So the Fair group enough. are imbalanced and people Fair have enough. gone to miss. The ideal should have been give same pre-medications and give same mist and then ensure the mm-hmm. non-inferiority and whether we can really give. I mean, I think this is we are going to be this is going to be one of the future of surfactant therapy. But uh, at this point, it's a small trial. Non-inferiority margin is very large. The groups are a bit imbalanced. So I'm a little bit not sure whether right. this is really going to make a difference. <laughs> but Fair it enough. is one of the important articles that many of us have thought about here. So I think you guys uh, have really uh really took took away the 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 wind out of the cell of this article but let's talk about the That's article that's a good food it, for thought you know yeah yeah everybody the, can mull about on that but abdul did say it is the future of surfactant therapy fair enough. <laughs> period so period fair enough now i think that the article it is competing with is a very important one and it's a one by laura hammett in the new england journal of medicine and it's near sevimab for the prevention of rsv in healthy late preterm and term infants so let's let's hear about that one brian uh do, do you want to tell us about this paper stay with us we'll be right back this episode is proudly sponsored by Reckitt mead johnson Reckitt mead johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. To learn more, visit hcp.meetjohnson.com. Yeah, um, yeah, this is, a, as you said, a big one, particularly in the U.S. right now, as it is rolling out in practices. But this is a randomized trial of nirsivimab that was published in the New England Journal. This is in uh, infants that were greater than 35 weeks. They were randomized to nirsevimab versus placebo in a two-to-one ratio. And importantly, this is didn't include anybody that would have qualified for pavalizumab or synergis, as we call it, which is you know our typical standard of care for RSV prophylaxis for babies who qualify. So this is for term or close-to-term kids who don't qualify for synergis in their first RSV season. Uh, they were randomized to get nirsevimab or placebo. The primary outcome was medically attended RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection. They had a few definitions that they they looked at, whether you had an RSV diagnosis with PCR or whether it was, and what sort of clinical symptoms you had, but um, it was, um, the primary outcome was um, including a, an R, a PCR um, diagnosis, um, and that was out to 150 days from the dose of nirsevimab. And then a secondary, I think pretty important outcome was hospitalization. So uh, RSV or any respiratory hospitalization was what were important secondary outcomes. Uh, 1490 babies were in, were randomized, 994 to nirsevimab, 496 to placebo, again, because of that two to one ratio. And the primary outcome, the medically attended uh, respiratory tract infections occurred in 
1.2% of infants getting the nirsevimab versus 5% in those um, receiving placebo and hospitalizations um, also significantly reduced um, from 1.6% of those getting placebo to 0.6%. And I like they have a table that or a figure where they they sort of display that in terms of number of cases averted. Um, and so if you look at like the broadest definition of RSV infection that they used, um, nirsevimab was estimated to uh, to avert 40, 84 cases of respiratory illness per 1,000 infants treated and prevent 19 hospitalizations due to RSV averted for 1,000 infants treated. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is a big one, uh, particularly in the in the U.S. I don't know sort of what's going on in Canada or Australia or other countries, you know, but here it's it's been a a, a pretty high impact um, study with many infants uh, getting access to it now. And I agree. I think I think a synergist has has always had these very res- restrictive criteria, in part because of concerns about cost effectiveness, and so the opportunity to have a single dose given for the whole season and and potentially produced at a lower cost. The estimates for cost are substantially less than pavalizumab per dose, and you only have to give it once. Um, really opens it up to a wide population of infants that weren't going to be eligible to, for pavalizumab before. Yeah, and I think it it's something that it impacts us as neonatologists for all of our babies who are at a very high risk of developing RSV and more severe complications of RSV, but also an, an article that has tremendous impact for the, the pediatric field at large. So uh, yeah, I think that despite my initial enthusiasm comparing this one to uh, the the surfactant administration, I think this paper probably wins the battle. I'm not even going to bring in a tool and Abdul. We get it. Like you thought the other one didn't even need to be in the brackets. I'm assuming you, your vote is there. But uh, uh, Daphna, uh, Brian, Rashida, which one do you vote for? Nirsevimab or uh, LMA versus ZT-Tube? For me, this is my uh, top contender to go all the way. So oh, I think okay. it wins. I Point. think it wins this matchup. Can Brian. I make a very quick comment about uh, the problems of the study? I'm not saying it's not a good study. But uh, my problem with this study was this is not in a high-risk population. So obviously, mm-hmm. it's easier to do it in a low-risk population. That's fair enough. But we all know that when we give vaccines to preterm infants, they have side effects much more than term infants. And especially if you want to give it at a time when they want to be protected from the RSV season, that needs to be tested. And rolling it out before testing it in preterms, I'm not sure, Brian, if there is other trials going on. That was one point. And the other point I want to quickly make is maternal RSV immunization is also up on the cards, remember? So how yeah. does that work out? I would rather give it to mum. But obviously, if you have mum delivering at 24 weeks for a preterm infant, if that, you know, antibodies are going to be there six months down the line when the patient gets uh, out of the hospital is something just putting it out there. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. that these, these articles these articles came out around the same time where uh, vaccination for the mother protecting the infant, especially in the first about three months of life. So, so yeah, there there's some competing factors there. Brian, yeah, you were going to say something. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I think you have to be aware of what population this study applies to. And while while I completely agree that you know the preterm population, which all of us here think a lot about, um, is a much higher risk population for RSV, that doesn't mean that RSV doesn't impact. You know the older infants and the the term infants, and even if their individual risk is lower, there's so many more of them that to the health system, there are there are a ton of hospitalizations that uh, treatment that is lower cost that can be effective for term infants at reducing these hospitalizations and these illnesses is is still hugely impactful. 
Um, there has been, CDC has online, you can look up a cost effectiveness analysis done. I'm not seeing it published yet, but it's been presented um, using data from this trial that, that, that suggests that within a reasonable cost range, um, it's likely cost effective in the US. And there's also one in Canada that actually combined it with the maternal vaccine and very interestingly use different models and approaches to vaccinating some women and then also vaccinating some babies to kind of find the most cost effective means of um, offering protection to as many infants as possible. Because again, like you said, and like I mentioned at the beginning, this study did not include anyone that was already qualifying for synergists. All right. Do we have a consensus, right? I think the RSV paper seems to be the winner of this matchup. I still, my vote is actually still for Gallup only because I do think we need to acknowledge that even though it's not a vaccine, vaccine uptake in the U.S. has actually been stable and going down. So this is something that will be on the onus of the parents, on the onus for access. And so I do think that access for this is going to take a lot more time than we think. But even though the Gallup trial is very small, will require a lot more research. It does impact what we do as providers. And so I don't, I think for me, it was the most impactful uh, article of the year, it, at least in this matchup, because of the impact that it we can immediately take to the bedside, where there's a lot of different factors with the RSV availability of this and other factors that I think will also take some time. So that's my opinion. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, for our next matchup, Abdul is going to present both of these papers. The first one is uh, a paper by Christy Waterberg and a colleague called Hydrocortisone to Improve Survival Without BPD, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the competing article is also published in the New England. It's called Early Amino Acids and Extremely Preterm Infants and Neurodisability at Two Years. First author is Frank Bloomfield. So Atul, briefly, can you walk us through what each of these papers are about? Yeah, that's right. So um, the first trial by Christy Waterberg was on hydrocortisone to improve survival without BPD. I think steroids have been there going on for quite a while, and BPD is on top of the list. And we're trying to reduce BPD by giving different medications we're trialing off, and steroids have been on top of the list. But we, we don't have um, a large trial that has proven that this is going to be beneficial. Uh, yet we use steroids. And this trial particularly looked at hydrocortisone in babies who have remained ventilated. So what this trial did is looked at very small babies who are less than 30 weeks and who have been intubated for at least a week. And the randomization occurred between two and four weeks of a second, third and second and fourth week of age. And babies received either hydrocortisone, which was four milligrams per kilo, over 10 days, and I believe the cumulative doses somewhere comes to around 18 milligrams per kilo are the placebo. And the main outcome for this trial was survival without BPD at 36 weeks. They also looked at, that was the efficacy outcome, but they also looked at the safety outcome, which was survival without moderate to severe neurodevelopment disability at 22 to 26 months. So the trial enrolled almost 800 babies. So this is a very large trial and we need to, this is the only large trial that we have on steroids. And, and I don't think we have any larger than this. Uh, and the babies were quite small, 700 grams. And they're also small, 24, 24.9 weeks. That was a mean gestational age. The outcome that occurred in the hydrocortisone group, which was survival without moderate to severe BPD was 16.6%. That was a small number of babies surviving without BPD. That is in hydrocortisone group, but in placebo group, 
the uh, event occurred in 13.2%. And the adjusted risk ratio was 1.27, spanning from 0.93 to 1.74. So there was no difference. But you can see that the confidence interval is almost suggesting that there could be benefit with the hydrocortisone group. And the other outcome, which was survival without moderate to severe neurodevelopmental disability, was that there was no difference. The outcome occurred in 36.9% in hydrocortisone group and 37.3%. So it's very evenly spread. And if you look at the confidence interval, it's very evenly spread. So that was one of the win for hydrocortisone because we are always worried when we give steroids to babies whether it's going to cause problems with mm -hmm. their brain and development. So that was at least one trial so far, to my knowledge, that has powered for neurodevelopment. We don't have any major trial until this point that has powered for neurodevelopmental outcome. And even if you look at the Cochrane meta-analysis, even combining all the dexamethasone trials, we still are not powered. And this is one of the big trials that has really shown that giving hydrocortisone will not affect babies. But again, there is not much benefit with that. But there were other secondary outcomes that the trial had looked into, which was extubation, extubation whether we can extubate babies. And the, the, the trial did show that babies were extubatable earlier. And if you see the difference in the extubation days, so babies who were given hydrocortisone, they were extubated three days earlier. And that effect was spanning from as high as five days to as low as one day, so that there was benefit. So if you're really looking into extubating babies, I think hydrocortisone is one of the good choice of truck to give to these babies. But then we have to remember that the outcomes, that is the main outcome, the survival without BPD is not going to make much difference overall. I think this article has, I would say, when I look at the evidence per, per se, this is one of the major trial that has shown that the outcomes might be better with hydrocortisone, particularly extubation. We can, we can extubate earlier, but, you know, the other main outcomes have not been different. So, Abdul, then take us to the next article by Frank Bloomfield on the early amino acids, and uh, yeah. let's see what hydrocortisone is competing against today. The other article was essentially whether we can give more preterm, more uh, parental inflation to babies. So, this was an early amino acids in extremely preterm babies at two years, and this is again a multi-center trial that I believe conducted across Australian and New Zealand centers. And what they really looked at is in small babies, whether giving extra protein is going to be beneficial because the school of thought is giving more protein. These babies are going to they're going to grow better and they're going to have less neurodevelopmental problems. And that was the hypothesis when they started with. Uh, so what they did is they randomized babies, 434 babies, 217 in each group, to extra gram of protein in first five days um, of birth. So what they really did is whatever the parental nutrition was going on. Um, so they just added a gram of protein extra to the randomized group, to one of the group, and the other group received the usual preterm PN. And I think they, they tried to maintain that difference. And in the randomized group, the overall the protein that intake the babies had, I think, was 3.6, 3.4 grams per kilo in the first week. That was the mean. And whereas in the placebo group that was less, which is 2.6 grams per kilo per day. But surprising was that the babies who received extra protein didn't do better. 
Mm-hmm. So the main outcome was survival free of neurodevelopmental disability, which was not different. The inter- the outcome occurred in 47.28%. That is half of the babies had survived without any neurological problems. And it was nearly same in the uh, placebo group, which was 49.8%. And the risk ratio was at 0.95, spanning from 0.79 to 1.14. So there was no difference. But there are many other secondary outcomes that they looked at, which is death per se and neurodisability per se. And that was, of course, no difference, but it was infrequent outcome and there was some wide confidence range to it. But if you look at the neurodisability rates and other neurological disability, and there were some concerns that uh, these babies had problems, particularly moderate to severe cognitive delay, if you see... 6.9% 6.9% of babies had it when they had an extra protein compared to only 1.9%. So that's a, a big difference. And also the language delay, there was some concerns and also motor delay. 7% of babies had moderate to severe motor delay, whereas only 2.5% babies had it. So giving extra protein was causing problems. So I think if you look back, neonatology has changed. So uh, aggressive is not always good. So this is one of the articles that really brings up. So we need to be careful in what we are feeding to babies. And we have to be very careful of that. And and they have, in fact, supported the hypothesis to the trial that when babies are given extra protein, they had more refeeding syndrome and more PDAs. And this is all linked with extra protein. And that is why these babies have these outcomes. So I think it's the right time for us now to really think how we should give proteins to these babies. Uh, we should not be aggressive. We should be careful. We should be looking into all those, you know, tiny little things like phosphate, potassium, and things like that, and making sure that we don't give too much to these babies. Okay. Um, if you had to pick a winner, uh, which one do you think, in your opinion, is the most impactful paper between these two? I think both. <laughs> no, that's um, not an option. Come on, get out of here. With that. <laughs> no, I think I'm both. <laughs> yeah, they can have both articles, which can influence practice. Then, so. I'm deeply yeah, divided, but you gotta pick, pick one. one. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go with Bloomfield. Y'all go with Bloomfield. Anybody, with Bloomfield. Uh, Brian is giving you the thumbs up. R- R- Rashida is nodding as well. A tool has a comment. Yes, a tool. Just a comment. So the Waterberg trial, Abdul is right, is quite a large trial. Uh, but uh, I was not too fussed about it, even though the neurodevelopmental outcomes, uh, Abdul is right, uh, was the primary outcome. You know, the Premilog study and the Stop BPD study from Europe had looked at hydrocortisone, uh, albeit different protocols of administration. Yeah. So that wasn't selling it for me. Bloomfield, I think, is really good because, you know, like Abdul said, everybody thinks if we support these babies with more nutrition, they do better, but actually less is more. And Kami Martin put it so nicely in her editorial for this article. So I think Bloomfield is the winner, definitely, for me. Very good. Very good. All right. We're yeah. going to... Uh, yeah, yeah, Brian, sorry. Well, I was going to say, like, I gave an enthusiastic thumbs up because in terms of like all of these eight papers, which one actually has already changed practice where I'm at? And it's Bloomfield. Like we already, after publishing that, reviewed our protein administration in the first few days of life and cut back our like standard TPN orders for the extremely preterm infants to give them less because we were realizing we were giving close to four grams per kilo, you know, by day three or by day two or three. And we said, look, this looks like there might be harm there's certainly no benefit and we already cut back. So like we absolutely changed our practice based on that. Mm-hmm. Whereas Waterberg, and maybe this is my bias, like I already use DEX. I kind of want at this point a DEX versus hydrocortisone trial, if anything, because 
if I'm going to want to get a baby extubated, I would, I'd use low dose dexamethasone in this age, in this like time period. So, it, you know, this one not showing that it reduces BPD, I'm like, okay, well, how does it compare to the thing I already do, which it didn't answer the question. So fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, then. So we are going next in the, in the next bracket. This one will be, uh, we'll have Brian and Atul present these two papers. Maybe Atul, we haven't really heard you present, so maybe you can get us started. You're presenting a paper that is published in the Lancet. It hasn't, like, it's the WHO Action Trials Collaborator. It's called Antenatal Dexamethasone for Late Preterm Birth, a multi-center, two-arm, parallel, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial. Tell us a little bit about this paper, and then Brian will follow that with uh, the article this is competing against. Yeah, so uh, this is an important paper. So the WHO Action Group is a very active group, uh, obviously sponsored by the WHO, on doing these low-middle-income country trials on dexamethasone uh, or betamethasone, uh, you know, the steroids, antenatal steroids in women uh, who are pregnant with premature babies. This particular one is the largest late preterm trial. So these are babies who are between 34 weeks and 36 weeks of uh, uh, you know, mothers who have imminent preterm birth between 34 weeks uh, and 36 weeks of gestation. And as you know, uh, we all give uh, steroids to women less than 34 weeks in high-income countries. But, you know, the biggest killer or the biggest impact of pre premature death happens in low-middle-income settings and they happen in the 34 weeks to 36 weeks because obviously most preterm babies are born in late prematurity. So I think it's a really important trial. Uh, so they randomized 780 women uh, to either getting the uh, steroid uh, before imminent birth, preterm birth, or uh, 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 placebo. So the steroid they used was dexamethasone in this case. Unfortunately, the antenatal dexamethasone did not show a reduction in neonatal death, stillbirth, or uh, severe neonatal respiratory distress in this trial. The problem is it was not powered for those things because mm -hmm. unfortunately what happens is... Uh, in these late premature babies, the incidence of any of these problems is not very high. So you need a very big trial. And I think they mentioned it that they need a trial of more than 3,000 women to be able to power that outcome. So I was a bit disappointed overall with the study because they could have done a bigger trial because there's no dearth of babies. So, uh, But unfortunately, they had planned for a smaller trial. So although the trial is very important, it adds it doesn't actually conclude much. So we need more trials. And that was the conclusion from this trial. Fair enough. Brian, you're reviewing uh, for us then the competing article, which is an article by uh, Hunchfield. And that is the expected management of early ibuprofen for pain ductus arteriosus, the Beneductus trial. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the Beneductus trial. This is the hot topic of neonatology forevermore, the PDA. This is a multi-center non-inferiority trial of selective, what they call selective PDA treatment. This is um, selecting PDAs that were above a certain size, greater than 1.5 millimeters with left to right shunting among infants who were extremely preterm uh, defined as less than 28 weeks to either expected management, which is no treatment or early ibuprofen therapy given within the first 72 hours. Their primary outcome was a composite of moderate to severe BPD, or death at 36 weeks PMA, or or they also included in the composite uh, stage 2A neck or greater. 
Um, so the typical, what we normally see is the death of the moderate to severe BPD, but they also added in neck uh, 2A or greater to that composite outcome. They randomized 273 babies with a mean gestational age of 26 weeks and 845 grams. And I think most importantly, um, one of the big topics in PDA trials is is sort of off-label or off-trial ma- treatment of the PDA. And they managed to you know, not only successfully randomize those babies to expectant management or early ibuprofen, but the rate of of PDA treatment in the expected management group was exceedingly low. Um, I think either none or maybe one baby, if I remember correctly. Um, so they really very successfully did perform this trial. The primary outcome was uh, 64% in the uh, treatment group um, versus 46%. So higher incidence of the composite outcome of neck 2A or greater moderate to severe BPD or death at 36 weeks. And this is primarily due to increases if you if you break up the composite outcome, primarily due to increases in BPD from 33% in the expected management group to 51% and death, which um, increased from 14% to 18%. Um, the the neck 2A outcome wasn't was the um, event rates were very similar. Yeah, so this is you know uh, I think adds uh, to the PDA literature, particularly I think because it does address one of the primary concerns about a lot of PDA trials, in that many many times a lot of infants get treated even when they get randomized to no treatment, which the Benedictus trial was was able to successfully um, solve that issue. It, for me personally, I don't think it's going to necessarily hugely shift the needle on PDA treatment, mostly because I think people are just so entrenched regardless. But I do think it was a very well designed trial. I think it. Um, it solved some of it. It kind of addressed some of the big concerns about prior trials. I think one concern that still remains is is whether we're selecting the right PDAs to be treated. Um, they just went on this size measurement, which some people say you know is maybe not the best measurement, and there were no clinical criteria that you had to qualify for. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's that's a limitation to me. Like it wasn't the babies who were mechanically ventilated with big PDAs. It was just based on that size. And okay, I agree. I agree with that, uh, Brian. What do you, what do you think then would be your pick between these two articles to to move on to the next round? I think it's tr- for me. It's tricky because I don't I don't think either for me personally is cha- is changing my treatment. And I think as the tool mentioned, because the WHO trial you know wasn't powered uh, you know appropriately, I don't know if it's going to maybe yeah, move so, the so they're going to get defeated in the next round. Big deal, but still, um, just so I probably still. Yeah, I'd probably still pick the Benedictus trial. I I do think, at the very least, one of the things that it highlights for me is while there certainly may be certain babies with certain types of PDAs that still warrant treatment, if you actually, there was a good editorial by um, Jonathan Slaughter and Carl Backus, who are doing the the trial of uh, percutaneous closure, that commented that, you know, this was designed as a non-inferiority trial, but but when you have a non-inferiority trial that has event rates like this, you can test for superiority. Um, and, and when you do so, um, actually expected management was better than ibuprofen therapy in this trial. And so I, I do think that suggests not to say that, you know, not treating the PDA is always better, but I think it highlights that there are certain babies that the treatment can cause more harm than good. And, and so that we should think cautiously about using drugs, because mm-hmm. even if you're doing with the best intention, you might also worse outcomes for some babies. Atul, would you agree with that? Do you think the Benedictus trial is probably informing us more on on what to do? Yeah, like Brian said, both of these trials, uh, you know, make made us want more. They were not great, uh, unfortunately. I agree the Benedictus trial should probably go ahead, although 
I work in the low middle income setting as well, and I would have liked a low middle income trial to move to the next round, but I think the Benedictus is going to be the winner. Okay. I think we we must say that many people still treat PD aggressively, <laughs> and yeah. for, for them, this is still a win. Uh, they have to really think about what we what we do, and we should probably start not giving uh, you know treatment for babies just based on the duct size. Um, the important findings I I would pick up from this trial is that. If you see the uh, the ibuprofen exposure group, the exposure group, they had more, you know, more uh, more out more uh, severe outcomes, um, more BPDs. That was surprising. Um, yeah. I mean, at, at least if there was no difference, that was that was okay. But giving ibuprofen is worsening BPD, and that was something concerning. So that people have to realize that you know it's not yeah. a simple treatment. It just doesn't cause GI or you know renal issues, but it also can increase BPD. It can affect the vasculature. That can something come up. Yeah, and it's similar to like premod. This was in fact was prematurely terminated because the outcomes were more in the exposure group, and people were concerned that I don't think we have to randomize more babies because randomizing more babies is causing harms. So. This article, I mean, even though we picked up now, it might not change the practice, but we have to realize that there might be some concerns with ibuprofen. So we have to be really careful how we choose uh, to treat babies. All right, Rashida, you're up next. You're you're doing our last matchup. Two articles, I think two very good articles, actually. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, this is, it's interesting. We had some, uh, some, some matchup of, I would say, weaker articles that we thought... Uh, were not as impactful as we would have hoped. And then we have this bracket where we have a, a two articles published in the New England. The first one is by Wu and colleague called Trial of Erythropoidin for Hypoxic Ischemic Encephalopathy in Newborns. It is the result of the HEAL trial. And then you're going to tell us about another article by Kate Hodgson and colleague about the use of nasal high flow therapy during neonatal endotracheal intubation. Which one do you want to start with? Yeah, I'll start with the HEAL trial since um, you introduced that one first. And I, sure. I like to think of this trial as sort of the heartbreak of neonatology for 2022. I think there was a lot of conversation and Very devastation. Cool. Totally agree. Totally because, agree. Right? <laughs> and so, Such high hopes. <laughs> yeah, but I do think that there's um, a lot of important, important information to be gathered from this trial. And Actually, I think that there's some, even though it is the heartbreak, I think some really positive information that came out of it. And so the objective of the study was to look at um, erythropoietin in terms of its neuroprotective effects and hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And that was also in the setting of babies that were receiving therapeutic hypothermia. And so the methods are important for this trial because they used a hundred, uh, excuse me, a thousand I uh, units per kilogram given within 26 hours after birth, as well as uh, days two, three, four, and seven. And the primary outcome was death or neurodevelopment and neurodevelopmental impairment um, at 22 to 36 months. And unfortunately, the results show that the incidence of the outcome was higher in the EPO group, and you know, that was a very unexpected result. But I, I think there's really important, and the reason why this was unexpected to give people a little background that may be unfamiliar with this, there are some smaller studies that do show some benefit with epogen, as well as some many, many, many animal trials that show significant benefit. So this was a benefit with EPO. So this was a very unexpected result, but I do think that there's some important um 
things to be noted from it. The uh, authors do talk about some upcoming trials that may give us, that will add data. Um, so the PAEN trial that will be coming out soon. Um, there's questions about, you know, administration of the doses in terms of timing and the amount. And then I think most importantly, what are some other adjuncts that may be a part of this? So there are some smaller animal studies that are also looking at melatonin and other adjuncts that may be a part of sort of like a bundle of um, treating uh, HIE. So we only right now have therapeutic hypothermia. We don't have another adjunct, but you know there may be more information with EPO. There may be other adjuncts like melatonin or other things. So I do think that this trial, even though it does give a negative result, actually is sort of, um, in the context of the literature, very important because, A, I don't think negative trials get as much press as they should. And so it really makes us go back and think about the methodology and our practice, but also think about maybe it's not working because we need a bundle. And so mm -hmm. I do think that this is really um, a, a great trial that has a lot of impact in terms of I found the, it in interesting. the context of literature. I found it interesting that, as you said, some of these smaller studies that had shown promise for EPO were by the same authors. Uh, and so sometimes you were like, man, these guys are giving us good stuff and hopefully they're going to one delivering this great news. And that's why I think yeah, I agree with you. It is the heartbreak of, of the year for neonatology because you're like, oh, no. But uh, yeah, uh, great also to see, like you said, that negative studies are being published and are getting the attention that they now need because it 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 gives us, challenges us to think differently about about the problem. Okay, then. So the HEAL trial is competing against uh, the paper by Hodgson about using high-flow nasal cannula, high-flow therapy during intubation. Tell us about I like that paper too. Yeah, this was a really interesting paper um, that I don't think got as much press as it should have. But I, I do think, again, when we're talking about intubations, right, sort of as we started the conversation this hour, we were talking about, you know, the intubation success rate is 50 percent. And other than having more opportunities to intubate, what else can we do as an adjunct to help these babies that are going through a traumatic procedure? So of course, we know about studies about pre-medication and skills and all those things. But what this trial looks at is if you have the baby on high flow with intubation, can you sort of stabilize them through that intubation uh, process? So this was an intention to treat and they had 202 infants for 251 intubations. And they did look at two groups. So they looked at infants greater than 28 weeks, less than 28 weeks. And what they saw is that the for this, a successful intubation of the first attempt without physiological instability, they had greater success in the group that rece was receiving high flow, and then also greater su success overall. And I think when you sort of think about it, it makes sense because, you know, intubation is a time-sensitive procedure, right? You only have a certain amount of time to get the endotracheal tube in, and maybe the baby receiving that high flow gives you a little bit of more more time. And they, I encourage people to read through the paper because it does talk about the physiology of why they think that happens. And so again, I do think this paper is important is because it's another adjunct that will allow, you know, the person who's intubating to maybe have a little bit more time, take their time as they're going through this. So that is the study. Oh, and the, the number needed to treat was six. So I thought that was actually pretty significant 
as well in terms of their results. Yeah, I, I think to me, the last paper uh, by Hodgson about about this, about using up high flow is, is something that had a dramatic impact and definitely something that changed our practice quite soon after the publication and addressed another big issue, obviously, which is not only improving success rate for intubation, but improving also the safety of intubation as we have more trainees and we have less opportunities for people to practice. We intubate many, much less babies. So I think you're absolutely right. I am wondering, before uh, I let everybody comment, which one is your your pick, uh, Rashida? This is probably the hardest matchup for mm-hmm. me. Um, but in the set, I think the HEAL study, I agree with Rashida. I think we should give more attention to negative studies. I think it 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 kind of fits a theme with the Benedictus trial in the prior bracket and even with Bloomfield in the bracket before that, that like, you know, treatments aren't always beneficial. And you should really know that something is effective before you use it in practice. I don't have a great idea of how how many centers were using EPO for, for HIE prior to this study being resulted. But I think if anyone was, they hopefully aren't now, I would I would say. And so that might be directly changing some people's practice. And I think HIE in general is just, there's a lot of things that are creeping, right? Like not just EPO, but you even saw in the trial, 20% of the babies who were eligible, who, who were being cooled, weren't eligible because they had mild HIE and they were being cooled. A whole nother intervention in this population that we don't know is beneficial. So if one of these things isn't beneficial, we have to really question everything else we're doing about this population and making sure that we really know what, that what we're doing helps. So I think I think highlighting that is super important. On the other hand, Rashida ended with the number needed to treat from the SHINE trial, which like we don't have that many things that have that great of a number needed to treat. I think it's clearly an effective intervention that that helps with innovation. I kind of wish it was a bit more pragmatic, but only negative to the trial, which I talked to the authors about, is that what I almost wanted to know was if you continued whatever intervent, whatever interface or whatever support you were giving, do you improve intubation success? Because what they had to do, like 90% of the babies were on CPAP. So what they had to do was they had to take them off CPAP, put them on high flow for the five minutes to intubate them. And I do wonder, especially with Lisa, lots of people are doing Lisa with CPAP already. Like there's a comfort with doing the laryngoscope and, and maintaining CPAP. Like does CPAP when you're intubating already just help you with intubation in the same way? And I think that would be much more pragmatic, maybe more cost effective instead of breaking open a whole new piece of equipment for five minutes. So that's the only thing that hasn't kept me from implementing it in my practice. I've intubated a few kids with CPAP because of this, because I've thought, hey, maybe if it helps with high flow, it'll help yeah. with CPAP. But and the amount um, of flow was pretty significant as well. So, yeah, but my vote so, goes for for the Shine trial. Anybody has any comments about this matchup? I agree with what everybody says it. Actually, yeah. both trials have changed practice in our in our NICU specifically. But I, I like that the the Shine trial highlighted one success rate of intubation. Of course, huge win. But I think it is a move in the right direction of saying we got to do a lot of negative things to to babies. Like, how, how can we make it? better. So I think there are some intangibles that were not even measured that I, I think are wins for for babies. So that's my vote too. Yeah, Abdul, you, you were going to say something. I completely echo with Brian what he was saying. The shine trial should come up definitely, no doubt on that. It it really does give that extra 10 seconds. If you look into the nitty-gritty, the authors have presented that extra 10 seconds. The babies in the standard group they they took almost 35 seconds to desaturate while babies were on high flow with some oxygen. So they took almost 45 seconds to desaturate. So that extra 10 seconds, these 10 seconds might be very important for trainees 
and they can get the tube in and that's they have shown it and i think that really extra time which high flow does give uh, is going to change it if, if you have a lot of trainees in your unit which we all have so this is the right time to use mm-hmm. that but if you look into other other things as well they also looked at if you're an experienced intubator you know in that case it might not change because with an experience you can quickly go in without that time to desaturate so there's no difference if you're an experienced intubator but of course that was not powered for that particular group but in that subgroup that did show that if you're an experienced it might it might not be difference but if you are having a trainee and the unit is a lot of trainees then definitely that's the thing to go there's a little bit extra thing that you have to do which Brian has rightly mentioned taking out a high flow and you know, for some units, it might be a bit of extra cost and things like that. But um, I think still it does add great benefit. So as long as we can get a tube without causing problems, that's something really going to change. Well, I think we have our final four then. And uh, I think we will publish that on social media. And we will see if some people agree. People can actually disagree with our final four and uh, see which one will take it all the way. I don't know if uh, we. Should we go all the way? Should we should we make a consensus of uh I was thinking we are going to <laughs> fine, let's do it then. I was so really have, surprised to see so what have, is going to come up. Yeah. Yeah. So we have two matchups. So then the first matchup will have uh the paper by Hodgson that we just presented competing with uh the paper by Hunchied on the, the Benedictus trial. So Atul, which one which one is your pick? So uh I think this year as compared to last year. It's been more difficult. Last year, it, the IKMC study I'm going to put out, out there again was such a clear winner from the start. It was very easy. This year, the competition is stiffer. But I'm going to go with the SHINE trial. Uh, the All these are closely matched. I think the final four are all closely matched. But I think uh, Hanshid, uh, because ibuprofen is a practice which is used across the world, not just the high-income world, I think people should really question it. Uh, the shine trial and the high flow, uh, it's not applicable to low and middle income settings. It's a lot of cost, you know, uh, impact. So I would go with the Hunchied trial. Okay. Brian? I'm going to go with the shine trial, I think. And I agree with the tool. This is tricky, but I completely see a tool's points. But I think, I think I'm going to go with the, the trial that clearly showed a, a, a benefit um, that is patient-centered. And so shine trial for no me. No problem. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the tough one. It's it's uh, shine for me. I think if we had shown a positive impact of something we could use in low and middle income countries, that would be the biggest impact. But this was the opposite, which hopefully we can save cost in, in this and use it somewhere else. But shine for me okay. in this matchup. Rashida. Yeah, shine for me as well because of just the immediate impact on babies and something that we really can do at the bedside. But I, I think a tool has really great points and the theme too of less is more, you know, looking at protein and Benedictus, I think, you know, if we're looking at overall themes for the articles from last year, that should be a really important take home point for folks in terms of sometimes doing things is not always better. Mm-hmm. What about you, Abdul? Yeah, I would also go with Shine trial just because the way the trial has been done and the, t- the way the findings we can interpret. The, with the Hanshiel, I think the problem is that they just use deductal measurement and um, shown that there's no difference. But they have 
really raised an important point that ibuprofen can be, can be problems which people have to be careful with. And I think some people have backed off, but um, there are still some of us questioning, you know, whether the trial really chose the right population. So given that point in mind, so, and given the SHINE trial showing clear benefits, I'd go with SHINE as well. Okay. Our next uh, matchup then uh, sees competing the article about the PROVIDE trial group, the early amino acids in extremely preterm infants by Frank Bloomfield against the nirsivimab paper published in New England by the Melody study group. Atul, which one is your pick? We see you not voting, by the way, Ben. So I, I was agreeing, but I agreed with everybody. I, I would have voted the Shine trial, and and so at some point I actually started writing it because I have the majority. I was going to be in the majority. So yes, you're right. All right, Atul, tell tell us which one is oh. your is your pick near Sivimab or early amino acid? Sorry. Yeah, no, I think we'll have to go with the Hammett trial. Like like Brian said, it impacts a huge population. Uh, obviously, it doesn't impact our NICU population, but uh, RSV is a big problem in babies as a whole. And definitely this is game changing. All right. Brian, he sort of uh, co-opted you a bit there. <laughs> co-opted your vote. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think Hammett for me as yeah. well. Daphne, that was your 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 front runner. So you're still going with that, huh? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I do think the amino acid trial is a, is a pendulum swing for us, but um, in terms of impact, it's the map. Uh Rashida? Yeah, I think very important trial. I still significantly worry about access issues um, mm-hmm. with cost and things like that, but I do think this will have a great impact long term. And so I I will cede to this trial and give it my vote. Uh, I agree with that vote as well. Abdul, just for the sake of completeness, your vote almost doesn't matter at this point, but but please. <laughs> oh, we want to hear it. <laughs> I was thinking the Bloomfield will come up. Yeah, but, um, dissenter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just because I'm a neonatologist and um, <laughs> this has definitely changed the practice. The Hamid one is more of a community pediatricians. And I think the question is how impactful it will be in low-middle income countries as well because we have a large population. Mm-hmm. Are we going to give mm-hmm. every single baby RSV? And um, so that's the question. I would go what? for Bloomfield, but anyways, consensus has come up with Hamid. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you can submit your own bracket, sir, uh, at your own. <laughs> I'll go <convenience>. Bloomfield. <laughs> <laughs> we will know. The bracket coming back with Bloomfield all the way, we'll know it's coming from <laughs> you. Our finalist then would be the paper by Hamid on Nersivimab against the Shine trial. We have to take a vote then on which one wins for us the article of the, the impact article of the year, a tool. Which one for you is, uh, I'll, is the winner? I'll go with the Hammett. Like, obviously, you know, we were part of the Shine trial team. So we are probably, you know, already implementing it for some of our babies. But the impact overall, I, I always yeah. look at a global perspective. I would think globally, vaccines save lives. And we should keep trying as neurologists to sell that. You know, I think if any vaccine saves lives, that's much more important uh, than a small practice. So, All right. Brian. Uh, this is kind of my pick from the beginning. I think that uh, Nersivimab trial, Hammett. Daphna? You already know how I feel about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, to Rashida's point, in terms of access, I mean, in our community, uh, I mean, our preterm babies were not getting all of their RSV vaccines. I mean, we were not able to get them in. And in Florida, it's a year-round problem. <laughs> so uh, I'm hoping this will improve access. 
I don't want to leave Abdul for last. Can we get let uh, let uh, Abdul just uh, not go last this time? That's fine. I can go with Hamid as well. That's okay. <laughs> We've converted him. Oh my God! What about you, Rashida? Yeah, and I think, like Atul said, vaccines save lives. I do think you know what this. Back to my access thing. I'm sorry to keep harping on this. I especially when you look at low and middle income countries, because of budgets, they're having to prioritize which vaccines are available. And I just, I would, I don't know if this one will actually be one that will be available. If you're sort of prioritizing rubella, mumps, (laughs) measles, I don't see this one being there for a while, you know? And so I think that that is the part that's difficult for me, which, and so that makes me lean a little bit more towards the shine study as the most impactful for the year. But again, if I'm then thinking about low and middle income countries, I don't even know if high flow makes sense, (laughs) you know, for that. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's the difficult part. I want to yes. hope that this is the first step to me to address your point that obviously you're, I think you're absolutely right, but hopefully then this is the first step of identifying a solution. And then mm-hmm. how, how does the solution become so, so disseminated that then the cost eventually goes down mm-hmm. and hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully we'll get there not too late. Um, but yeah, it is a definite concern. Okay. Then I think I, I, think we have, I yeah. just have one comment to Please. make. The Hammett trial didn't show any difference in death. So it didn't show. Yeah. The there was a reduction in that, but I think there might be, you know, if you reduce RSV in the community, it might impact our preemie babies and might might we can see that effect. But just wanted to say that from the article perspective itself, it didn't show there's difference in that, but there was reduction in the access, medical access related to RSV. Well, that does it uh for us. We have identified a consensus based on the group that we have here today. Please join us in submitting your brackets. Uh, Look out for our special giveaway in collaboration with the EB-NEO team. And uh, we're very much looking forward to hearing and and reading uh, everybody's opinion. I think this is always a great source of discussion. Uh, So thank you. Thank you all for participating and for making the time to be with us today. Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the dash incubator.org you can also message the show on instagram or x formerly known as twitter at nikki podcast thanks again for listening and see you next time this podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice if you have any medical concerns please see your primary care practitioner thank you